Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we are joined by Christina Kersey, Senior Youth Defense Counsel with the National Juvenile Defender Center. So Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Christina is joining us today to help us revisit a SCOTUS case from the October 2020 Supreme Court term, Jones versus Mississippi. So we did discuss this case in an overview of all criminal cases from the term with Rory Little earlier this year, but we are going to take time to spotlight this case and we're choosing to do that because this case has been a cause of great concern for juvenile justice advocates. They're concerned by the opinion that was delivered and its potential impact. So, Christina, let's turn it over to you for a moment. Would you begin by providing a summary of the case and the opinion delivered for our listeners in case they're not familiar? Absolutely. So, Brett Jones is convicted of the murder of his grandfather when Jones is 15 and he's waived and tried as an adult. And he's sentenced, he's convicted by jury, and he's sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, which was mandatory in Mississippi. And he appeals that sentence and it's affirmed. And then Miller's decided. And Miller's finds that the holding is that the Eighth Amendment impacts life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for defendants that were under 18 at the time of the offense. And so Miller appeals his sentence and the Mississippi Supreme Court orders that Jones be resentenced. And he's resentenced and the court considers the fact that he's a juvenile and then still sentences him to life without the possibility of parole. And it's appealed again. And at that point, Miller and Montgomery had been decided. And what happens is that the argument that Jones makes is that there should be a separate factual finding that a young person is permanently incorrigible before sentencing to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And the Court of Appeals rejects and the Supreme Court upholds that decision on cert, basically saying that the fact that there was discretion to sentence to something other than life imprisonment without the possibility of parole was enough and that that's what's sufficient for constitutional purposes. So Christina, thank you for sharing that summary and giving us that overview and reminding us of the details of this case and the path it took before it got to the Supreme Court. So you said the Supreme Court upheld that decision. Why was this opinion so shocking and concerning to advocates? I think that there had been a trend, right, starting with Roper, which ended the death penalty for youth offenders, and then moving on to Graham, right, which eliminated life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for non-homicide offenses, and then moving to Miller, right, which kind of talks about the idea that life imprisonment without the possibility of parole is this very rare sentence for all crimes, including homicides, and that it's really reserved for young people that are determined to be permanently incorrigible. 
And then Montgomery, which makes it all retroactive because they're talking about a class of offenders as opposed to a procedural set. And then also JDB, right? So that's 10 years ago where you have the court recognizing that age is a factor when considering whether or not a young person is in custody for purposes of Miranda and arguably creating this reasonable child standard. So I think that youth defenders had kind of been on this high. We were really excited that the Supreme Court was really starting to embrace all of this adolescent development and brain science that youth defenders had been screaming about and advocates that had been screaming about for years. And you really saw that in a lot of different areas as well. It wasn't only the Supreme Court that was embracing that. You saw, you know, the National Council of the Chiefs of Police talking about deception and police interrogation in their manuals, right? You saw changes with indiscriminate shackling. You've seen raise the age of youth court jurisdiction. Vermont is the first state to now go above the age of 18 for youth court jurisdiction. You see establishing minimum age transfer changes, right? So there's all these changes that are happening around how we treat young people that end up in the system. And I think the hope was that Jones versus Mississippi was this opportunity to really hold the sentencing court's feet to the fire when they have a young person in front of them and really make this separate finding about permanent incorrigibility and having to do that and really making sure that young people who are sentenced to LWAP, it's rare. And just really making sure that we're really looking at that in a real way. And we really thought that Miller and Montgomery gave us the springboard to require that. And so that's why so many advocates were hopeful that in Jones, that's what we were going to receive, that there would have to be this separate finding before sentencing a youth to LWAP, that they were permanently incorrigible. And the court basically says that's not necessary, right? It's sufficient that a court can consider age and then make the decision as to whether or not to sentence to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Yeah. So after this opinion, where will the discretion for sentencing life without parole lie? And what will this mean for other defendants seeking to have their LWAP sentences reduced under Miller and Montgomery? I mean, I think the Short answer to that question is is that it's still going to lie with the sentencing court and with the trial court. But I think that what advocates will say and what youth defenders will say is that there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of discretion along the way, right? You have states that have mandatory transfer schemes. And so the prosecutors really wield a lot of power based on how young people are charged. And in discretionary transfer states, there's a lot of discretion as to who has motions filed against them for transfer to prosecution in the adult criminal arena. I think that advocates will argue that states are still free to do what they want and to take action. And so lawmakers and the legislature has responsibility to implement changes there as well. So I think the short answer is the trial court, but I think that you'll see advocates for legislative change, you'll see advocacy around transfer changes 
And you'll see advocacy around fair and just prosecution, right? And progressive prosecution that really takes on the decision as to who is charged such that they are prosecuted in the adult criminal arena and who has motions filed against them to waive them to the adult court. Okay. And so I'm curious to know, Christina, is there a debate within the juvenile justice space, you know, those working in this space? Are there those that agree with the ruling and those that are opposed to it and going to seek advocacy? Or are advocates pretty much aligned in their next steps and being opposed to this opinion that was delivered? I think that it's still fairly new. I don't think that there's a lot of folks that are excited about the opinion. I wrote a piece and I joked that, you know, I didn't realize how much I really disliked the opinion until I got to the dissent and I saw what Jones could have been. Right. So if I read it in reverse and if Justice Sotomayor's dissent was the opinion and it contains all these references to ACEs and racial equality, right, and what's happened with Miller resentencing, like I really started to sort of mourn the loss even more. And so I think that there's varying degrees of disappointment, but I think that it's pretty uniform that all youth justice advocates are disappointed. Yeah. So then what comes next for juvenile justice advocates in regard to LWAP? I mean, I think the same thing that has always been, right? Like this is not something that happened quickly. These are long fought victories. And I have zero doubt that we're going to see new attempts and creative attempts to continue attacking this. And I think it comes from a lot of different angles, right? There's still the question of disproportionate sentences. There still is a commitment to Miller and Montgomery in that age matters. I think that there will be creative advocacy around the idea of what age even means. I've seen attorneys making arguments related to chronological age versus functional age. And so I think that you'll see inventive and novel arguments around what age really means. I think that you'll see arguments around the idea of transient immaturity as opposed to requiring a finding related to permanent incorrigibility, sort of flipping that on its head. My hope is that this decision sort of reinvigorates the commitment to mitigation specialists and social workers and specialized training and specialized units in defender offices, right, that handle youth defense and handle these resentencing cases, right, and training around the handling of cases involving offenses that occurred when a young person was under the age of 18. So I have no doubt that we'll see continued advocacy and novel strategies around that. And I think that the fight will continue to reduce the number of children that are tried as adults. You know, that's a really strong push as well. So the more that we limit young people that are charged as adults, the more we'll limit young people that are sentenced to very long and disproportionate sentences that don't recognize the rehabilitative aspects that just come with being a young person. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. There's certainly a lot of work being done by the section. I know that you're involved in that. 
as part of the standards committee, there is a group dedicated to revisiting the standards for juvenile justice. And so we'll all keep our eyes on what the section puts forward in that respect. So thank you, Christina, for joining us today. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give you a chance if there's anything else you'd like to share with our listeners for consideration, you know, as we all continue to watch how things progress in this specific space with LWAP or just as you indicated, you know, the bigger picture of, you know, trying juveniles as adults and those issues. Is there anything you'd like to leave with our listeners for consideration? I guess the final thought in general regarding young people is that I want to challenge everybody to rethink the use of the word juvenile. I think that it has a meaning in some locations, right? It has an actual definition, but I think that a lot of times it's a dog whistle. It's only related to negative things. I think it's a way of othering the way we treat children, you know, Chris Henning has this book coming out about the rage of innocence and how America sort of criminalizes Black youth. And I think that there's a lot in our language. And so I want to challenge everybody to kind of call our clients what they are and what they are, our youth or children, and to eliminate the use of the word juvenile in the practice of talking about young people that find their way into the system. That's a very thought-provoking challenge that you've given us. Thank you for that. I certainly will be mindful of that. Once again, this was Christina Kersey, Senior Youth Defense Counsel with the National Juvenile Defender Center. And as Christina mentioned, she did recently write a piece about this opinion, and we'll be sure to link that in our episode summary. So you can look for that there. And for those that are interested in being more involved with juvenile justice, we have an active committee within the section, and we encourage you to seek it out and join the conversation with us. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of the Just Pod.